Tonight on Farage, we ask the question, are we overestimating COVID hospitalizations and indeed death numbers? We look at the senior official from the United Nations who says the pandemic is a warning from Earth. Yes, it's climate change that's caused the pandemic. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by the redoubtable Anne Whittacombe. So the story this morning that really grabbed my attention was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. And it said, of those that are in hospital with COVID-19, only 44% of them have been diagnosed with COVID in the previous 14 days. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, what it means is that if you go in with a broken leg or perhaps something far more serious and you test positive, then that actually gets written down as a COVID admission to hospital. It also, looking at the numbers, suggested that people were going into hospital with very serious medical conditions and then contracting COVID-19 whilst they were in hospital. Now, uh, does this mean that we are greatly overinflating the number of COVID hospitalizations? And does it also mean, as we knock on, that effectively, when we look at COVID deaths, and after all, that is the most important and most glaring statistic upon which so much government action has been based, that anyone that dies that has tested positive within the previous 28 days goes down as a COVID death. Let's say, for argument's sake, somebody had tested positive and three weeks later, unfortunately, is killed in a motorcycle accident. And yet, it seems that goes down as a COVID death. And I'm not, by the way entering into this debate, trying to diminish how serious COVID has been for some people, the lives that it's taken away. I'm not trying to do that. But what I am saying is we have made, over the course of the last 18 months, or our government has made, some of the biggest and most important peacetime decisions that have ever been seen in this country or indeed in any other around the Western world. And surely it's important, if we're making life-changing decisions for people, that we're doing it with the correct statistics. And that's why that headline this morning of only 44% of those that are hospitalised have been diagnosed as COVID-19 positive in the previous 14 days really caught my attention. Now, let's join Carl Hennigan, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and an urgent care GP. Carl, good evening. Welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. So you saw those figures, you saw those stats, as I did, um, and The Telegraph published those figures, and they, and, it, and they said it was leaked data. Um, should we be worried about those figures? Are we perhaps overstating the number of people that are being hospitalised with COVID-19? So I have little to disagree with your opening statement. I think it's important for people to just let's go in the context here. A year ago was actually when we were putting forward, remember, you could never die from COVID. And we brought in the 28 day PCR testing issue. And that that changed fundamentally how we think about the data. That meant Public Health England had to rethink all of their data provision and then put out the dashboard. But what you're now saying is that information is helpful, but because it only 
sort of supplies a partial view of what's happened. It creates misunderstandings and misrepresentations of the data. And what you're saying is correct. There are sort of three bits of the data. The first bit, how many people contract get COVID in the community, remember the Prime Minister and then go in hospital, he would be counted as one of them individuals. But then there's two other groups. Like you said, you've gone in for something else and you test. You could be infectious, but you might have had the infection some time ago. And then you've got your other group, which is hospital-acquired infection, which has been a significant problem, particularly over the winter. Now, if you were in government and you wanted to make decisions, you would want the highly accurate data to inform what you do next. But there seems to have been a problem in how people have looked at that and said, we need to now fix this. This is an urgent issue as we go into the next winter. If we're gonna keep testing at these levels, producing this amount of data, we need to make it more accurate so you can make appropriate decisions, as you've said, particularly on policies that affect the whole country. Yes, so how do we make that those figures more accurate? How do we assess? You know, who is in hospital because of COVID? Who is in hospital that happens to have COVID or has had COVID fairly recently? Or, and this is the one I'd really like to get to, Carl, how do we work out how many people catch COVID in hospital? Yeah, so so of the, of the two that in hospital is, the number for that is if you test positive after seven days. And that figure got up to about 20% in the middle of winter. It's much less now, and it's more reassuring. And that looks like the vaccines are having a significant impact on that. But this second group in the middle, those that go in for another reason, and because we're testing regularly, is a hard group to determine. But there are some easy ones, easy wins. You could tell us, for instance, how many people are going in for a cesarean section and are testing positive. And what's important is what's called the PCR positivity rate. And it's been recently about 11%. So that means in every 100 people you test, on average, in the background, you're going to get 10 to 11 people will test positive. And that's what happens when you screen the population. They get the background risk. The good news is it started to come down in the last few days. But you can see why you have problems. So what you need to do is take those people out and get the people who actually have COVID. Now, the other thing we've been promised which has not been forthcoming, and this was the last uh, health secretary promised this, we would actually get data on the people who are actually infectious versus those that are recovered in hospital. And that's important, for instance, you may have somebody who's 85, who's been in for three or four weeks and is recovered, but will still be in the figures because they can't be placed in a bed yet. So we need to know also how many people have recovered. This is basic epidemiology, and we have to fix this going into the winter. It sounds like a fair bit of work to do. Now, the other newspaper headline, Carl, that caught my eye today was the front page of The Times, which said that scientists are baffled by the extent to which COVID-positive tests have gone down over the course of the last seven days. So is there some unexpected good news? Well, there is good news, but what people have been doing is looking at the cases that are reported as opposed to if you look at the cases by specimen date, when the cases were actually taken, what you'll see is actually the cases peaked on around the 15th of July. So actually we're about 10 or 11 days now beyond that peak. And actually cases by specimen date are down by about half. You just look at the reporting date. Remember, that comes a few days after. That's when you know about the test result and you report it. They've been coming down by five or six days. But what you should expect, I don't see why this is so baffling, when a virus becomes endemic, it will wax and wane. Sometimes it will go up, 
sometimes it will come down. That happens for all the other respiratory pathogens that we see in primary care. There are about 30 that we know of that can give you viral pneumonia in an annual cycle. They'll go up in September as schools go back. So that's not that baffling. But what's happened here is there's been a lot of people made predictions which they are now not coming to a fruition. Particularly, there's going to be 200,000 cases. There's going to be thousands of deaths. And now they're railing back from that and saying we're baffled. I think we have to expect a new, a, a, an approach now that cases will go up and down. And actually, what we need to focus on is what we started this conversation on, the actual hospitalization and the death data that matters yeah. and actually forget about the cases because actually they don't represent the impact of the disease. And that's important because the vaccine has broken the link between cases and disease in those who are the most vulnerable, the elderly. Carl Hennigan, thank you very much indeed. Well, Carl Hennigan making the point there is a fair bit more work to do to get the data right. Well, let's get another view, because joining me now is Sally Jane Cutler, Professor in Medical Microbiology at the University of East London. Thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening. And, and you can see why I'm asking this question. When the Telegraph front page runs this story and it's leaked data that says uh, that of those in hospital uh, that we say have got COVID and therefore we think are in hospital because of COVID, only 44% have tested positive for COVID in the previous 14 days. So I'm asking the question, Sally Jane, are we overestimating, you know, perhaps quite significantly, the number of people that are in hospital because of COVID-19? There is a chance that the number, the metrics that are being used could potentially not be 100% accurate as... Carl has just highlighted as well, no measure is really going to truly be accurate um, in reflecting the true numbers of disease. And certainly some people are going to give positive test results that may not actually relate to their infectiousness status as well. And so you've heard a little bit about the, the PCR test um, and you can compare the sensitivity of that with some of the other tests that are being used like the lateral flow test. And the PCR can actually give you positives for quite a prolonged period of time, even after you've recovered. So they usually say, oh, don't do another test for at least 90 days because the likelihood is it'll still be detecting positives, even though you can't actually recover infectious virus from those individuals. So no metric is perfect, but I think we have to stick with the metrics we have if we're going to look at trends, if we want to look at increasing or decreasing numbers. If we keep changing the rules of how we actually measure and assess, then we're not going to know whether we're seeing increases or decreases. Well, I'm not suggesting changing the rules. I'm just suggesting that perhaps the data upon which government are making very big decisions affecting all of our lives and millions of businesses, I'm just suggesting that perhaps the way we're doing it, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a statistician, but it does seem to me there's something wrong here. And I also have to ask myself the question, how many people are actually catching COVID-19 whilst they're in hospital. And, and nobody seems right now, you know, we, ha we had estimates last winter of what it might have been, but nobody seems to be able to answer that question for me. Well, I think it's definitely something we need to keep an eye on. But people that are in hospital, the longer you stay in a hospital, 
the, the greater the chance that you might actually get an infection. And COVID is one of those, I'm afraid. Um, it happens. So basically, the, the best thing to do is to have a, a very, if you do need to go into a hospital, stay there for as short a period of time as is possible. Um, and that minimizes the risk from this hospital acquired infection. And COVID is one of those, I'm afraid. Yeah, and no, I was just talking to Carl Hennigan about the drop in numbers. You know, the number of positive tests has come down. It's basically halved in the course of the last seven days. And his argument was, well, you know, with any virus, things wax and wane and you get a good week or you get a bad week. Um, I mean, how are you feeling? Do you get the feeling that we are beginning to come towards the end of all of this or not? Um... I think it's overly optimistic to think that we really are sort of seeing the back of it, the end of this particular wave. I think we need to think very carefully about some of the factors that are actually going on that might actually be artificially letting us see this drop. We know that a lot of people are disengaged now with the testing. Um, they've heard, oh, restrictions have been lifted. So why do we still need to stick a swab up your nose and the back of your throat every couple of days? We don't need to do that anymore because restrictions have gone. Um, so I think a lot of people are not going to be engaging with the testing. And this is actually reflected in some of the government data as well, in the fact that I think sort of from a week ago, we, we've seen a 14% drop in the testing that's actually going on. So if you test less, you're going to see less and so that's part of what's going on and then people have actually just sort of got to that holiday time the last thing they want to do is they, they've just purchased a holiday do a test whoops I'm positive I can't go uh, you lose your money so I think again a lot of people are not going to want to be testing because of that yeah. a lot of testing was instigated because children were going into that school environment where you've got lots of people together and school's now finished so again there'll be less testing going on associated with that so I think that maybe it's an artifact that we're seeing with this drop I hope to god I'm wrong and that it really is going to be so continuing downwards so, so do I. Um, I really want that to be the case but I think with the release from restrictions that only happened a week ago um we're, we're going to see more people going out more people mixing and unfortunately more transmission going on because of that because when you look at the infection rate at the moment we're already at about 400 cases per 100,000 of the population, which is absolutely scary. That's a terrifying level of infection. And so I think we need to be careful. We need to take precautions wherever we possibly can. OK, thank you very much, Nadine. Well, Sally-Jane Cutler, they're saying that it's far from over. Uh, we've still got a very high case number, but lots of people are not getting tested because they're going away on holiday. And we, of course, cannot approve of that behaviour, but we can perhaps understand it. Now for the government, today has been Crime Day. It's Get Tough on Crime. And Boris Johnson uh, has been out there today on the front line. So let's watch Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking outside the Surrey Police Headquarters earlier on today. I also want to see those who are guilty of antisocial behaviour uh, properly uh, paying their debt to society. And, you know, somebody's antisocial behaviour may be treated as a, as a minor crime, but it can be deeply uh, distressing 
for those who are victims. And if you're guilty of antisocial behaviour, I don't see, and, and, and you're sentenced to, to, to unpaid work, as many people are, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be out there in a, one of those fluorescent jacketed chain gangs visibly paying your debt to society. And so well, you're going to be seeing more of that as well. Well, a couple of comments there. Uh, firstly, you know, whoever is in charge of organising Boris being out on the road uh, should be fired, because uh, rule number one, wherever you go in this country, is you have a proper umbrella ready. At least, in fact, more than one umbrella, because uh, you never know. That struck me as being somewhat ludicrous. Um, but there's the Prime Minister, and this is classic Boris Johnson, isn't it? You know, people wearing fluorescent jackets in the modern-day equivalent of chain gangs, offenders out cleaning up the street, and paying back their debt to society. Well, it all sounds terrific. And it was very much backed up by Priti Patel. Uh, you know, front page, Daily Mail today. Once again, we have the Home Secretary making tough speeches, just like she does with the Channel Migrant Crisis. Uh, you know, and, 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 and yes, all these offenders are going to be out and repairing the ill they've done to society. Um, I think, myself... Once again, it's this government over-promising and, once again, they'll under-deliver. That's how I see it. And I would have thought that there were actually other problems with crime and law and order that ought to be a priority. Because if you're going to put offenders or immediate ex-offenders out to work, you're going to have to find people to supervise them. But, look, let's get an expert opinion. So joining me now is Colin Sutton, retired Detective Chief Inspector with the Metropolitan Police. Colin, um, you've seen today the Home Secretary talking tough, the Prime Minister talking tough. Um, is it actually going to amount to anything? I think one of the problems with, with announcing policy in these great big swathes like this is, is that these sort of eye-catching sound bites do capture the attention and get the, the, the wrong sort of uh, reception, maybe. And if you look deeply behind the, what's in this, this plan... There's a lot of good stuff there. But, of course, people are going to focus upon the thing that's, that, that matters to them. And, and you know, I, I don't think uh, fluorescent jacketed chain gangs is a particularly good turn of phrase uh, <laughs> to, to try and put forward a, a, ser a serious policy. No, but it's Boris the journalist, isn't it? It's the sort of thing he'd have written in his columns and it would have made great copy. And we know that's what he's good at. I mean, you know, he's good at, 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 at giving us images and flowery language, but not always so good... At delivering. But, but, Colin, let's talk about... I mean, what are the real priorities for the police and law and order right now? It certainly isn't this, is it? No, I think the, the, the priorities for the police and law and order now really should be to reflect what the communities they serve actually want and want them to focus upon. And so things in, in, in this plan, like having, you know, the Greater Manchester scheme of a, a, burglar, a burglary means a visit from a police officer... That's not something new. That's something we were doing in the 80s. But it's something the public like and would want. Um, the, the idea of, of the tagging and the, the, the excess tagging, GPS tagging of convicted burglars and thieves, it's modern technology. It's there to be used. You know, I, I think that's something that will be popular and may well be effective. Um, but the, 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 I say the trouble with all this is, is that people seize upon the thing that they particularly don't like and that gets blown up to the top of the agenda. And actually, there's more money here. There's more money for probation services. There's more money for the court services, courts staying open. Um, and a lot of that is to replace cuts that have been made and try and get us somewhere back to the position we were in um, 10 or 11 years ago. That's, that's true. 
but nevertheless you know we are where we are and so any increase has got to be something that's that's welcomed now we saw quite significant police cuts following 2010 and uh, you know we were the economy was in a terrible mess after the banking crisis uh, but there have been big promises from this government to rebuild police numbers how is that recruitment going is it actually happening it is happening because you, you've got something like 9,000 new recruits since the policy was announced uh, towards the 21,000 which they trumpeted. Yeah. The infrastructure of the police service is something that's been depleted massively over the last 10 years. So, and that's the real problem because if you start talking about communities and engaging with communities, their local police station has been sold off. It's a lovely block of flats now. And if you look around London, the number of police stations in London that have gone is, is just incredible. And it's something that's repeated throughout the rest of the country. So forces that have been short on money have seen these assets that they had and they've moved the police out to out of town, cheaper sites, mm. but that takes away the policing and the access and the engagement point from the hearts of those communities which they're trying to serve. So, you know, and, and that's a problem that isn't going to be fixed easily anytime soon. Some of those in the Liberal media make the argument, Colin, and they make it repeatedly, uh, that actually the Bobby on the beat, the police on the ground, doesn't really make a difference to crime numbers. And I, I have to say I, I'm very, very sceptical of that view. Uh, what do you think? I mean, does the presence of police on the street, does it stop low-level crime, which can then lead to other things? Yes, I think it does. I think it does and it works in a number of ways it's not just about crime it's about the fact that these officers are able to engage show a presence and make people feel safer and even if the reality is you know there were studies done years and years ago uh, saying that a, a foot a foot patrolling officer passes past a burglary once every 12 years or something like that you know yeah that might be the case but if those people who are seeing the police officers on the street are made to feel safer by it then that works and also it's it's about engagement and yes we've gone you know everything's on social media now there are still a number of people who would actually like to have the opportunity to bring their local bobby and have a cup of tea and chew over what's been going on in the area and i think we've lost that to a great degree yeah well that sounds like common sense to me colin thank you very much indeed for joining us for this discussion well that was colin sutton following the prime minister and the home secretary's robust speech and we're going to have people with fluorescent jackets in chain gangs clearing up our streets it'll never happen don't worry in a moment we meet somebody who i think follows in a great long line of english eccentrics he's managed to build in his back garden in Cumbria, a life-size model of a Spitfire, mostly with baked bean cans. Now remember, you can comment on anything I say, anything our guests say, gbviews at gbnews.uk, and you're never shy in coming forward. You can also send in your questions to Barrage the Farage, and I will read out those questions at the end of the programme, having not seen them before, so no doubt I'll be tripped up before too long. On your comments thus far, James says, COVID numbers are some of the most overinflated stats I have ever seen. They admitted that half the cases in hospital were diagnosed in hospital. Well, James, that was my reading 
of what I saw on the front page of The Telegraph today. He, he goes on to say, i.e., they went in for something completely unrelated to COVID but were added to the tally regardless due to obligatory testing. Well, I have to say, it is a real issue. And I, I'm, I'm surprised that story hasn't become bigger today, personally, but there we are. John says on email, the numbers of deaths put down to COVID when the death was caused by, say, a car accident has always been an issue. It has greatly inflated the COVID death statistics. It is a totally skewed statistic. And that's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. You know, if we're making big decisions affecting everyone's life, we need to do it on the correct figures if we can achieve them. Tom says, I believe the COVID figures have been hyped from the start. The experts have a vested interest in prolonging this crisis. Also, how does our reporting compare with those of other countries? Well, it seems to me that every country is doing this differently. And finally, in this little section here, we'll go to Camilla on email, who says, these new statistics are good news. They may help stop future lockdowns. Well, in that, I think Camilla's referring to the falling case numbers. Uh, let's hope that's a trend that continues. But we were warned uh, by our virologists and our statisticians that these things can wax and wane. Now, I've always thought this country has a great, great tradition of the eccentric who decides to do something totally extraordinary, completely impossible, very expensive, uh, and that will take an inordinate amount of time. And such a figure it seems to me, joining this long, great tradition, is one David Price. Now, David, <laughs> living up in Cumbria, decided that he wanted to build for himself a full-scale model of a Spitfire in his garden. And David joins me. David, good evening. Good evening. What on earth? And I can see the magnificent plane behind you. Now, I, I, th I think there are some of the press stories around this perhaps are wrong, because it's not all been built with baked bean cans, has it? No, really, I can confirm that only one baked bean tin has been harmed in this process. And there <laughs> is one baked bean tin in it. Uh, but, of course, yeah, I mean, I, I did use all sorts of different materials, um, mostly plywood, actually, plywood and, and fiberglass. Um, so that's, that's really the bulk of it. But, yeah, there are some little odd bits that uh, are unusual for certain. But you've also got some genuine things there. I mean, I understand the canopy, the Perspex canopy, is a wartime or immediate post-war Perspex canopy. Well, not quite, but it, it's, a, it's a canopy made for modern Spitfires, modern flying Spitfires. OK, yeah. So, in other words, it, it's a new, a new moulding. Um, I've also got some Spitfire tyres on here. Again, they're not wartime ones. I'm, I'm used to seeing wartime stuff, and it's, it's kind of uh, fairly worn out now, unfortunately. But uh, these are Spitfire tyres that uh, have come off a flying Spitfire today. And, David, can I just ask, I mean, this took you... I understand this took you thousands of hours to build this, yeah. this replica. Um, I mean... It obviously takes up nearly the whole garden. It, by the way, I have to say, it does look magnificent. So well done, you. Um, what on earth? What on earth inspired you to do this? Well, I, I finished in the construction business in about three years ago, 2018. And um, I, I actually became an author. I, I wrote a book called The Crew, the story of a Lancaster bomber crew. And... Um, but in the process of writing and just changing everything about the way I lived, really, um, I still had to do something creative and practical. And this is what kind of kicked it off. You know, it was kind of unrestrained.
creativity, I suppose. I was writing during the day and I just needed to do something with my hands. So this is where this rather bizarre idea kicked off. Yeah. Yeah, I just needed to do something with my hands. Normally means a vegetable patch or putting up some new shelves, not actually recreating and building a model Spitfire. But you are something, I understand, of a military historian yourself, and, and perhaps you're an aficionado with the Battle of Britain or that period of history. Yeah, I mean, I, I've studied military history for quite a while and obviously writing and researching on the, on the uh, subject. So the Spitfire was no stranger to me. Um, in fact, really, the, the instance where I... I sort of got the idea was at the Battle of Britain Memorial um, on the clifftops at Folkestone. Yeah. And I saw it. They have a fiberglass one there. And I stood beside it and I had two thoughts, which I said out loud to my wife, which were crucial. The first one, it's not really very big, is it? It, it could, you know, almost fit in a garden. That. Uh, that was the first thing I said. And then the second thing is I looked at the detail on it and I, I had this sort of thought to myself, that's that's really good, but I think I could do something like that and, and maybe improve on the detail. Um, so both of those were suicidal thoughts, I suppose, but here we are three years later, and uh, I have a Spitfire in the garden. And dare I ask, David, and by the way, you're referring to the Capital Laferne Memorial up on the White Cliffs of Dover, and yeah, if anyone's, anyone's going down, you know, when we get normal travel back to Dover and travelling off the continent, it literally is a couple of minutes off the main road and worth seeing. David, three years on, um, and with your wife having been there, uh, when the inspiration for this came into your mind, has she been supportive of the project? project? Well, yes, yeah, she has. I mean, it's, it's grown. It grew as, uh, you know, very small, a few bits and so on. And then there was a marquee in the garden, and most of it was built in the marquee. Um, and the marquee only came down last Thursday. So suddenly, <laughs> uh, all the neighbours... Well, the neighbours knew about it, but now we've got, you know, people actually stopping and, and staring and all that kind of thing. So... But yeah, Trisha's, Trisha's got used to it. I think we, we sort of have a deal. It's not staying forever. It has to go somewhere and she gets the garden back. So that's what we're working on. <laughs> David Price, well done you. Great project, thank you. great fun. And it does, I have to say, it looks magnificent. So thank you very much thank you. indeed. That's great. Thank you. Well, what the Farage, the story today that really had me choking on my cornflakes. Take a look at the Assistant Secretary-General of the United Nations and Deputy Executive Director of the UN Environment Programme, Joyce Masua, who was speaking at the opening ceremony for the 54th session of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Here she is. While the climate crisis, together with biodiversity loss and pollution, has indeed been underway for decades, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought this triple planetary crisis into sharp focus. The pandemic is a warning from the planet that much worse lies in store unless we change our ways. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. The pandemic is a warning from the planet, yes, the pandemic has clearly been caused by climate change, by CO2 emissions. I mean, everything is down to climate change, isn't it? Not a mention, was there? Not a single mention that it's possible that the pandemic came from a Chinese wet market. And certainly not a cat's chance in hell that she would ever suggest that the pandemic might just have leaked out of a laboratory in Wuhan. 
a laboratory that was funded by all the great organizations of the world, US authorities, UN authorities, and European Union ones as well. And I have to say, this obsessive, ridiculous, politically correct, nonsensical view that everything, everything that goes wrong in the world is down to climate change and that disaster is almost, almost upon us. I think we see with that speech how utterly farcical some of that has now become. As I say, I nearly choked on my cornflakes. But then, what do you expect from the United Nations? Up next, I am going to be talking pines with a woman who I think is the best-known female politician since Margaret Thatcher. Yep, sitting here with me, maybe not drinking a pint, but I will be, is going to be the redoubtable Anne Whittacombe. Some more of your comments that are flooding into this show, and some of them are even in support. Alison says, they may be testing less, but perhaps that is because less people, let's say fewer people, are feeling ill. If you test large numbers of asymptomatic people, you will get a high number of false positives, including people that recovered a couple of months previously. Yeah, I also suspect one of the reasons the numbers are down is that the schools have broken up, and quite a few of those positives were coming in that younger age bracket. Emma also says, we had to insist that we didn't want our relative who died in a care home of old age and dementia, that we wanted these reasons recorded on the death certificate, not COVID, as she tested positive a month before but had no symptoms. And I and thank you for that very deeply personal story, but I'm afraid there's just been too much of that going on, it seems to me. David on Facebook says, just when you thought Farage couldn't stoop any lower, he starts regurgitating conspiracy theory garbage. Well, don't have a go at me. Have a go at the Daily Telegraph, who put those leaked statistics on their front page. And Judith says, I feel your discussion tonight on COVID and hospital has the wrong angle. The scandal here is the lack of protection for poorly patients who go into hospital with non-COVID issues who are infected with COVID in hospital. This happened to my mum at Christmas. She'd shielded all year but needed to go into hospital with gallstones. She tested negative on first arrival but fell ill after surgery and tested positive for COVID on Christmas Day and died just three days later. I feel my mum was not protected sufficiently in hospital and this is a scandal that should be investigated. As I know, she is not alone. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That can't have been very easy to write that, and I wasn't underplaying that. I did ask the question of both of our experts, how many people are actually catching COVID whilst they're in hospital? And, and I, if I'd got some firmer answers, I would, I would have gone on to say, what can we do? To stop it. But we know for the last 20 years we've had staff and super staff and hospitals are places where it's difficult to stop infection spreading. Now, moving on to our Talking Pints section where we bring somebody in every day uh, to talk to them about their life and what they care about and what matters and what they're up to and what they're doing next. And today we have got Anne Whittacombe joining me on Talking Pints. Cheers, Anne. Cheers. Now... Brexit to Brexit. And, of course, we were colleagues um, 
we were colleagues in the Brexit party, we spent time together in the European Parliament. In fact, I won't forget, um, it was Easter Saturday, 2019, Easter Saturday, and because we were supposed to leave on March the 29th, and Theresa May had said 108 times, we're leaving on March the 29th, we woke up on March the 30th, we hadn't left, and suddenly it occurred to people we might have to fight a European election because we were still in the EU. And I was in the office, brand new party, trying to get it off the ground, Easter Saturday, sitting in the office, and I got this phone call. I got this <laughs> phone call, you see. And, and I picked up the phone and said, Hello, Anne Whittingham here. So I stood to attention, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Well, it's almost true. And you asked me whether we wanted candidates and you were... I think you were absolutely infuriated at the promises yeah. that had been made and not delivered. And, of course, you got elected to the European Parliament and we had a fine time working together. Oh, we had a great time. And I think we achieved quite a bit. So that was, that was tremendous, and I love working with you, and you've got an amazing work ethic, which, which, which I saw. Um, and kind of we won, didn't we, in a way? Well, you won. I mean, well... You know, I mean, over 25 years, you fought very hard for Britain to leave the EU. You've yes. never been in Parliament. You did it all from outside Parliament. Uh, so you won, Nigel. Well done. Well, I did what I did from the European Parliament, which, which oddly gave me a bigger platform, I think, in some ways, yep. than I might have had in Westminster, because being a group leader and all of those things. But, Anne, um, you know, I know, having worked with you, and, and, and I want the viewers to understand, if I'm right, I think the single thing about you that I've always understood, and, and, and why I use the word redoubtable about you, is that you have a certain conviction in what you believe. You think things through. But with you, it all goes back to first principles. And I, I think that's Christian faith, isn't it? It certainly is, yes. I mean, a, a lot of my views are a direct result of that, but others aren't. And, and people very often think, oh, I believe this because I'm a Catholic. Yep. In fact, I always did believe it. Uh, so uh, some are directly the consequence of faith, some aren't. But underlying my life, yes, is, uh, is that Christian faith. And, of course, a very patriotic upbringing. You yeah. know, your father in the services and, and, yeah. and Plymouth and the Navy and all of those things. What was it? I mean, in the you first got elected to Parliament in '87, I think. Correct. So that's, that's, that's even that's a few years ago <laughs> now. What? Because there weren't that many women in the Conservative Party in Parliament then, were there? No, indeed, there were 19 of us, and yeah. five of us w were new. You know, so there had been news of 14, uh, and five of us came in, and we bumped it up to 19, and this was regarded as you know, something quite remarkable. Yeah. And of course, that was all before the days of quotas and A-lists. We had to compete with the men on exactly the same basis as the men, I'm very pleased to say. We did not have our paths artificially smooth for us, so those of us who got in there um, had really wanted to get in there. Mm. And having wanted to do it, and having got there, what was, what was the reality like of being in Parliament? And then, you know, climbing the ladder, and, 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 and of course, you, you became Minister for Prisons. I did um, indeed become Minister uh, for and, and, and Immigration. And, and you've seen Boris's plans today, that they're all going to be out of prisons in chain gangs. I, it's not going to happen, is it? I am tired of announcements coming out of the Home Office almost every five seconds. Pretty mm. announces a new policy. Uh, and yet, what's happened to the one she's announced before? Where are they? You know, where is the action? Uh, and I did say on another programme, you know, it reminds me of the famous epitaph, Here lies our sovereign lord, the king, whose word no man relied on. He never said a foolish thing, and he never did a wise one. That's this government. Is Boris that bad a leader? I think he's weak. 
I think he's hopelessly weak. I think his instincts are actually libertarian. If you remember right back at the beginning of this pandemic, when he was asked why he was only making staying at home advisory and not compulsory, he said, oh, it's a land of liberty. Well, he doesn't say that now, does he? I mean, liberty has gone out of the window. Uh, and I think, I think he's a weak leader, um, but he's uh, at least 100 times as strong as Keir Starmer. Uh, so I ought to be grateful for that. <laughs> I mean, you've, you know, Mrs Thatcher, of course, was there in 87 yep. in an enormously powerful position, and you've seen it all the way through John Major and Tony Blair and, and, and of course, Michael Howard, um, who you, you know, you're something of the night about him, did seem to rather stick uh, with Michael Howard and didn't do him a lot of good. I mean, who's the best leader you've seen? Oh, I think undeniably Thatcher, though I do think John Major was underestimated. Now, we may have differences with him over Europe, mm -hmm. but I do think that as a Prime Minister, he was underestimated, and I think the judgment of future historians may be rather different from that of um, contemporary uh, commentators. And uh, politics. But, of course, Thatcher was, was you know, head and shoulders above everybody. Yeah, until the end. And, in, yeah. and, and there's an end for everybody unless they decide to go yeah. at the right... Moment, but I mean, it's a huge roller coaster, isn't it? Politics. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, riding high up in April, one down, up one down, shot down yeah. in May. Yeah, what, what, what was the low point of Al Whitaker's career? Oh, I think it came in the year 2000 when I was Shadow Home Secretary and I devised policy, which was actually passed uh, within the party, of um, zero tolerance towards drugs. Now, Drugs accounted, the statistics then were, that they were accounting for 80%, 80% of all acquisitive crime and 30% of all crime. So if you could make an impact on drugs, mm -hmm. you would make a big impact on crime in general. Yeah. And therefore I wanted a policy of zero tolerance all the way up from supply right down uh, to soft drug usage. Um, and that was what I proposed, with proportionate sentences. Uh, and, uh, that includes cannabis and what, yeah. and what yeah, we yeah, call yeah. soft drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I was then stabbed in the back by six or seven colleagues who announced to the press that they had all taken drugs you know, when they were at university, and effectively they didn't regret it. So you were left high and dry? I was, I was absolutely left high and dry. That, that, that was the end of it, yeah. And when you left politics, finally, you did it voluntarily. Yeah. yeah. You decided, you know, you'd be in the MP for Maidstone. Enough. Yeah. You'd had enough. Um, the Brexit Party got you back into <laughs> politics. But, you know, and I know, you've, I know you're very fortunate, in a way, to live where you do. Yeah, Dartmoor. Yep. On the edge of Dartmoor, views out over the English Channel. And I'm sure for lockdown, there have been far worse places to be uh, than home for you. But you're still out there fighting and campaigning, aren't you? Just tell us what your latest campaign is. Free speech. Uh, I am appalled now at the... I mean, it's been going on for some years, but it's been really crescendoed in, in, in the last two or three years, at the way people are cancelled, have their livelihoods undermined, mm. um, when they say something that displeases this actually quite small minority of people called the Wokarati. <laughs> but for some reason, all the institutions bow down to this minority. Including corporate companies. Oh, we saw it with IKEA. Um, but it was actually quite interesting what happened there because um, IKEA had been advertising on GB News, as you know, mm. and the woke protested and thought this was inappropriate. So what happens? They ring up and they presumably get somebody in the PR department and speak to the managing director. And he says, oh, 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 no, 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 we'll be reviewing it. But then you got what I've been longing for. You got 
the backlash from the yeah. non-woke karate saying, yeah. well, if you review it, we'll review our custom in IKEA. And that is what we need. We actually need those who do not like the current trends to start actively resisting. And does the same argument apply? Because, you know, and my feeling is that an awful lot of what is happening in schools yep. and universities, uh, frankly, a lot of it's near indoctrination, it seems to me. We're not teaching critical thinking. We're not saying, look, you know, here's a problem, here are two solutions, you make your mind up which one you have the most respect for. How do we, how do we turn around the education system? Well, the government is introducing law to compel universities to uh, have free speech and with penalties if they don't and all the rest of it. But will it be applied? Well, whether it will be applied is one question, but the other question is why wait till universities? You know, education starts in the schools. And what education is supposed to do is not teach you what to think, it's supposed to teach you how to think, mm. how to analyse, mm. how to apply a rigorous um, examination. Uh, that's what it's about. Um, and doesn't appear to be happening. Mm. So so that's where they need to start. So you will battle on with this free speech Oh, I, I will absolutely battle on. I had a, um, now, some time ago now, uh, a, but a successful uh, outing to the Oxford Union yep. with Toby Young. Yep. Um, and I thought that we were going to lose that because students were heavily no-platforming at the time. Uh, and, in fact, we won by a vast margin. Um, now, the Oxford Union is different. It, it's always been devoted to free speech, to controversial debate. It enjoys that's that. That's what it's there for. And that's what it's there for. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, you could easily have lost, as you said. Yeah. But I'm, I'm interested in this, because I, you know, I introduced you earlier. I said you're the best-known female politician since Margaret Thatcher, and I genuinely think you are. But that isn't all because of politics, is it? <laughs> mm. Are you thinking of a little excursion on the dance floor? Well, possibly? I mean, strictly come dancing, and I don't know whether you, how you—I mean, I don't know how you view your own dancing ability. Um, but it was—I mean, it was a sensation for you, wasn't it? It was certainly that. There was no dancing. Anton called it many things. He never called it dancing. <laughs> there was absolutely no dancing. Um, there was comedy. High comedy. Yes. Um, and that was what we went for, particularly in the Latin dances, because in the ballroom, Anton had hold of me and could sort of push yeah. and pull and mutter left, left, and, and things like this. When it came to the Latin, he used to say, from the moment he let me go, which of course you have to do in the Latin, until the moment I came back, he was never certain what would have happened in between. <laughs> Did you? I mean, you clearly, you must have felt slightly self conscious doing it. No, not really. But I honestly did expect only to last two or three weeks. I mean, that is the honest truth. I did not expect it to sort of knock my retirement onto a completely different course, which is what it did. Hmm. And I thought, oh, I'll do this for two or three weeks. I'm bound to be eliminated very early. I can't dance. I'm tone deaf. You know, I'm <laughs> And the audience loved it. And the audience just loved it. And you became... Did you become more famous through that? than you did through politics? If the measure you use is what people say to me when they stop me in the street, then the answer is yes. Yeah. No, I bet it is. I bet it is. And you've been... I mean, OK, you, you, know, you got back into politics with the Brexit party and that was great fun and a great success. But outside of that, you know, you're still writing, you're still doing journalism, you're still coming on TV programmes, you've been doing your tour around yes. the country of theatres. Yep. And, of course, with lockdown, that's all come to a shuddering halt. I'm doing my first tour... Uh, since before the first lockdown, uh, at the end of this, uh, at the end of this week, 
Uh, it's only four theatres. The audiences are going to be small because they haven't quite got back in, yeah. into uh, the normal mode. Or their confidence uh, hasn't quite come. Their confidence isn't there. Mm. Uh, so uh, I'm doing it regardless of the small audiences because yep. I think, well, I need to kick this off again because it hasn't happened for so long. Yeah. So, Covid behind you, everything back to normal, and Whittacombe back on the road. Well, I would like to think everything was back to normal, <laughs> Nigel, and I so know. would you. <laughs> and I would, but anyway, you're going to keep carrying on. Well, that was Anne Whittacombe coming to a theatre near you soon. Well, there you are, you see. Once a campaigner, always a campaigner, there is absolutely no chance, zero chance, of Anne Whittacombe retiring. It just isn't going to happen. And that's a very good thing, because the battle for free speech, the battle for diversity of opinion is a very important one, and one that here at GB News we are fighting for very, very hard indeed. So we come to the final segment of the show. It is Barrage the Farage. And I absolutely promise you... I have not seen these comments or questions before, so something at some point before too long will clearly go very badly wrong, but let's give it a go. Joanne asks on Twitter, on your cream tea, is it jam or cream first? Now, this, I think, is the Devon or Cornwall question. I would, and I'm going to offend one of those counties right now, there's no doubt about it, but I would put, I would put the jam on first. There you go. So... And tell me, who would be offended by that? Uh, well, jam on first is yes. actually Cornish, but I do it even though I live in Devon. Oh, well, there we are. I'm not alone, so if Hans happen to upset people in Devon, so am I. Daniel says, what do you think the global response should be to China? Will they ever be held accountable for the pandemic? No, not by the World Health Organisation or that ridiculous woman that we saw earlier from the United Nations. Um, I suspect not from Vince Cable. And I like Vince Cable very much, but I was quite shocked by some of the answers that he gave last night. It's as if we're saying, look, just take the money and don't worry about the rest of it. Uh, clearly, I mean, Donald Trump called it the China virus and was abused for doing so. Um, I did something on Twitter about a year ago where I said, you know, just remember where this came from. And I was trolled by Chinese state media for weeks for even daring to do it. But, you know, the origins of this virus are relatively, if I can say it on this programme, small beer... Uh, compared to the threat that I think China poses strategically, uh, and I'm talking about Taiwan and potential military threats there. I'm also very interested in whether China should be part of our nuclear industry, and we're going to debate that one evening next week here on Farage. And lastly, Chris asks, why do we need rules for electric scooters when they're illegal already? Well, what's legal, what's illegal, I don't know. Uh, but I tell you what, electric scooters are a menace, but there are other, many other menaces on our streets, such as people riding bicycles with utter disregard for pedestrians, other cars, red lights, uh, not paying any road tolls, not obeying any of the other rules that everybody else has to. And also the road closures that we've seen in London through Sadiq Khan, uh, where clearly the car is public enemy number one. It is all a complete and utter nonsense and local residents are standing up um, and they're really fighting back against it. Well, I'll be back with you on Farage tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. But coming up next, standing in for Andrew Neil, it is Colin Brazier. But first, though, the vital weather.